You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. China descends towards becoming merely the world's second most populated country. Germany continues to agonise over how far to involve itself in a war with Russia, and France's commitment to secularism holds firm in the face of an exacting test case. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Barbara Serra and Jonathan Fenby will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the World Economic Forum in Davos, from where Monocle 24's frostbitten team are reporting all week, removing their balaclavas only to broadcast. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the international journalist and broadcaster Barbara Sarah, and by Jonathan Fenby, a consultant on China, author and former newspaper editor. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. What, what, what have I missed? <laughs> I, I, you've got I, it all. You just I, tell, say who you are <laughs> and where I, you've been. <laughs> I, I, I should explain to our doubtless agog listeners that is, this is my first daily back from having been in Australia for three weeks in a bit, where I can confirm it is sunny and warm. That is very good to hear. (laughs) I mean, we in Britain love the cold winter air, and we say this is how it should be. No global warming for us. You're you're outnumbered and outgunned at this table by an Australian and an an Italian. Italian It's the rain, I think, that gets to me the most. Is it really? See, I I can. This is this is riveting weather chat. Um, (laughs) I, 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 I can stand the rain. I can stand the rain. I can stand the cold. It is the dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. Jonathan, I put it to you. That that is a problem. That this would be a much happier country on permanent GMT plus two. Oh, it, plus two. Yes, yeah. that, as, that as, as was the case during World War Two, which you won. Well, of course, because of <laughs> because, the because in, because in, of in the daylight, and the time difference, yes. exactly because yeah. of the time difference. <laughs> yes, I'm indeed, convinced indeed. it was the crucial factor. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm well aware that jet lag does prompt a certain tendency to talk associative drivel, so I will (laughs) wind that up at this point uh, and move on to the first proper topic, which is China. And it may not seem that a moderate dwindle in the population of China is necessarily cause for concern. At last count, there were 1,411,800,000 Chinese people. That's 21 United Kingdoms or fully 2,187 Luxembourgs. China almost certainly has 20 cities bigger than 5 million people that you've never heard of unless you are in fact Jonathan Fenby. But that 1,411,800,000 is down 850,000 or about two and a half Icelands on this time last year, the first decline in the population of the People's Republic since the 1960s and unlikely to be the last. Um, Jonathan, it's not difficult to discern why this has happened. This is the the reality of the the one child program or one child policy sort of catching up with them. But it's not just that. It's also that fertility had actually started to fall in China, according to most studies, before the one child policy came in. Now the one child policy has been relaxed, but the cost of having children uh, is such that uh, people don't want to have more than one. Well, we'll come to those reasons shortly, but. It strikes me that this is, is it not, what 
the Chinese Communist Party actually wanted until quite recently. That's why you institute a one-child policy, because Absolutely. you want a smaller population. And now yep. they've got it, they don't want it. They don't want it. And at the same time as having the smaller population, fewer babies being born, you've got people living a, a lot longer. And that's the real problem, that you've got this very, very large cohort, um, as I think it's called, of old people now in a society which has a very rickety pension system and uh, lack of proper health care or any kind of old age care in enormous uh, areas of the, the country. So it, it's, in a sense, the, 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 pro the social problem is at the old age end rather than the young age end. Mm. At the same time, um, as you know, uh, China's economic growth has been based in part on a huge flow of cheap migrant workers coming into the labor force, manufacturing for uh, exports for the developed world. And if that um, contracts even more than it does already, and already that equation wasn't working all that well because wages were going up, uh, you'll have movement of manufacturing to Vietnam, Bangladesh, and other countries. Uh, Barbara, is what China is experiencing, even leaving aside <clears throat> the ramifications of the one-child policy, this is the pretty much normal course of modernization, is it not? And you, of course, yourself come from a country where women routinely had very big families and now routinely do not, partly because they have other options. Uh, well, partly it's interesting that you say women had big families. Of course, that's the whole problem. Mm. It's not just women that have families. It, it, it's couples. So. But yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you the, the one that bugs the trend, or actually many bug the trend, the Middle East. I mean, mm, you know, the Middle yeah. East, of course, the median age is very, very low. But yeah, you look at this with China and you think, well, welcome to the club. I mean, even South Korea and Japan have got declining mm -hmm. populations, yeah. the whole of Europe, we know. And it was interesting reading some of the things that the Chinese government is thinking of doing. So, you know, tax cuts and trying to give incentives. But, you know, we're seeing a lot of that fail all around the developed world. And what's interesting about the way that the population from the 1980s in, in, in China now is it's sandwiched. You get families that just have one child that now have to take care of two aging parents yep. because, as Jonathan was saying, the pension system isn't all, all that it could be. And so you're really asking these people that already have to take care on their own of two aging parents to then start having children. And there's a lot of cultural yep. reasons why they don't want to do that. The role of women is changing everywhere. I mean, in Japan, mm -hmm. that is obviously one of mm -hmm. the main cultural issues that women are expected to do everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in a way to China, for very different reasons in their case, but welcome to the club. Jonathan, how is the CCP managing the messaging on this? I mean, uh, President Xi Jinping pulled quite the handbrake turn on this at the Communist Party Congress last October. Is that as close as the CCP ever go is ever going to get to saying, you know what, we were wrong. Uh, I think so. I don't think we're going to get much more. <laughs> and you're still getting uh, ministers saying, uh, as the figures came out, that we've still got surplus labour. There is more supply than demand, as the phrase was put it there. And that remains so for the moment. And actually, paradoxically, with this fall in population and all the woe uh, expressed around that, you've also got youth unemployment rising to record levels in China. And there's a real problem with unemployed youth as the economy slows down and the kind of the jobs in construction, in services uh, and so on diminish and there is less for them to do.
Um, Barbara, though, does this end up having ramifications beyond having to, at some point in the next few years, rewrite the record book and acknowledge India as the world's most populous country? Does a few fewer Chinese people add up to, I guess, global kinks in supply chains, um, perhaps even diplomacy? Does It doesn't... Does a decline... I mean, 850,000 people a year is a lot of people to most countries, but it's not to China. Does this end up changing China tremendously? I mean, look, I think we'll have to see. I would guess the instinctive answer might be not really, although, of course, people was one of China's strengths and everything Mm. that brought along uh, with it. So, no, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what it does, if it has any impact. I'm not quite sure how it would play in China. Psychologically, this sort of decline in population, how it would affect them in the way that they see themselves in the in the world, but I think perhaps it might be too early to to see any actual change when it comes to defense and their role in the world. I mean, their growth was still three percent last year, a lot lower, mm. of course, than it well, has been yeah. pre-COVID, but still growth of three percent. Well, that's one of the difficulties that this the decline in population and this, if you like, image of China as itself as the most populous country in the world. I mean, Deng Xiaoping famously asked Henry Kissinger, "Do you want some people? How many do you want? Ten million, twenty million, thirty million, uh, and so on." Um, that that comes at a time when, uh, quite apart from COVID and the effect of the zero COVID policy, you've got a huge number of problems arising from the basic China uh, growth model uh, in debt, in the property crisis, which is enormous at the moment, local government finance, etc., etc. Xi Jinping has got quite enough uh, on his plate already. And I don't think actually that the worry about population uh, will be there at the forefront of policy for some years to come. Can I just add one thing? I mean, it is quite shocking to read the story because, of course, over the past however many decades, we all got used to reading those absolutely heartbreaking stories mm-hmm. of forced abortions and the no. impact that the one-child policy uh, was having. And, and it just, um, I don't know, just to talk about it now when I remember just all the stories and, and yeah. films, very difficult to get out of China anyway, and just how devastating at a human level the one-child policy was for so many people. It did. And the whole th- the phenomenon which was known as the bride price, mm, that yeah. because of the, the gender imbalance uh, and so on, uh, if you want to marry uh, a young lady, you better have an apartment and you better have uh, a good income because otherwise somebody else will outbid you. And it became a very materialistic uh, relationship. And, and something that definitely happened in India because there is a sort of prize to having a boy, that mm. there were a lot of abortions yeah. of, of female mm-hmm. fetuses. Now, I don't know whether the same happened in China, but of course, an imbalance in the yes, gender, yeah, you know, male, female would also make things difficult. In when... fact, scanning of, baby, of babies in the womb was uh, prohibited at some Absolutely. point precisely because of that. Yeah. Uh, just a final quick thought. Uh, Jonathan, is it important, do you think, at some level to China's sense of itself, its national prestige, that it is the biggest country in the world? Yes, I think that 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 is built in. To... So, so will it be weird for them when they have to acknowledge that you know, they're merely the second? I mean, I come from a country of yes. twenty-five million people. All this strikes me as mildly hilarious. And it'll be weird for a lot of journalists who are so used to <laughs> writing the cliche, <laughs> yeah. "the world's most populous nation." Whereas India yes. was always the world's biggest democracy. Whereas yes, now exactly. we have to change it all around. <laughs> yes, uh, Jonathan and Barbara, thank you both very much for the moment. We will have more from you shortly, but we will be sticking with the theme of. China 
China for a bit. Because in Davos, after a three-year hiatus, the World Economic Forum's annual winter wingding in the Swiss mountain resort is back. Nearly two-thirds of the chief economists in attendance forecast a global recession in 2023. Happy New Year to you guys as well, with expectations of growth in China remaining polarised. To get a sense of the current economic picture in China, Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, spoke with Shirley Yu, a fellow at the Ash Centre, Harvard Kennedy School. According to some unofficial statistics, uh, in the economically developed areas in China, the infection rate has surpassed somewhere uh, in the neighborhoods of 80%. So we can say that in terms of the revitalization of quintessential Chinese supply chains, which are very much spread across China's uh, economically wealthy regions in the East, uh, that uh, recovery is going to happen pretty quickly and pretty strongly. However, the virus situation continue to spread uh, most prominently in the rural regions in China. So the COVID situation is going to continue uh, in the foreseeable month. Uh, and that's potentially going to be uh, more devastating from a public health perspective. But in terms of the economics, uh, China's recovery is already starting. And when it comes to 2023, obviously, uh, economic revitalization is very high on the Chinese leadership's agenda. China is just moving into the 2023 congressional session at the regional level and in March during the twin congressional session at the national level, China is expected to announce 2023's uh, GDP growth target, which is very much uh, forecast to be around 5%. And now just to give a bit of a long-term perspective, in 2020, uh, the Chinese long-term vision has outlined for the economy to double in the next 15 years, uh, meaning by 2035. And so as long as the Chinese economy continues to grow at around 4.7 to 4.8% per annum, that'll make the Chinese economy twice as big by 2035. And uh, put aside the COVID situation, growing at about 5%, if China uh, can manage to continue that growth momentum, China is going to be a more significant global economic power in the next decade. So China's central government have been working on lots of different policies to sort of revitalize the economy. Can you talk us through some of the main ones that they're looking at? In 2022, we saw uh, Chinese trade, which has uh, uh, largely been one of China's major economic growth drivers. Trade has been slowing down. And so that's uh, not a positive sign. So for the past three years uh, during the COVID period, what really has sustained China's economic growth uh, was government investments. So government has been uh, pumping massive liquidity into infrastructure projects. And of course, uh, when government continues to invest into the economy, the economy is going to uh, see some sort of uh, uh, revival there. But over time, the marginal return on investment diminishes over time. So we're starting to see the government pushes in more and more liquidity into the system, and it generates less and less return. So fundamentally, what is going to give the Chinese economy sustainable uh, recovery in the coming decades is going to be the recovery of consumption. We haven't seen that. December, China's CPI hovered around 1.8%. So China faces a very different kind of issue. China doesn't really have an inflationary issue. China 
on the contrary, needs to stimulate consumption. And in 2022, China has seen um, uh, record levels of savings growth. So the Chinese consumers are opting to put their money in the banks rather than buying another real estate uh, apartments or uh, consume in uh, you know luxury goods or uh, investing into their future. So that, again, is a vote of uh, uncertainty about the future of the Chinese economy. So a lot of the, the government's efforts currently is going to have to focus on reassuring not only the investors that are, the government is going to continue to place economic growth at the forefront of government thinking. Well, recession, obviously a big talking point here in Davos. The other one would be semiconductors. It's fair to say China's in a big battle with the US over semiconductors. Can you hazard a guess who's winning? <laughs> this is going to be a long game. Essentially, uh, the US and China are uh, entering a, a strategic era of competition that has evolved from trade to investment flow to increasingly technology, uh, national security, and eventually to global rules and norms and values. A lot of these things are being debated about at Davos this week. and so. Uh, when it comes to technology specifically, there is nothing that is more fundamental than the semiconductors industry. And uh, the, in the past months, the Biden administration has uh, um, upgraded its level of sanctions to China's uh, semiconductors access, starting from access to uh, the chips themselves to access to any technology equipment uh, that are uh, essentially using the U.S.'s uh, um, you know, uh, technology is a part of the global supply chain, and the U.S. is uh, garnering support from uh, allies from the Netherlands to Japan in order to join into this uh, global collaborative effort to sanction China's uh, semiconductor industry. And then uh, we are starting to see uh, one of the harshest uh, form of sanctions is essentially to restrict the capital flow into China's semiconductor industry because the rising semiconductor industry in China are very much supported by U.S. citizens, Chinese Americans, and a lot of the uh, Chinese green card, green card holders. And so currently the U.S. sanction says that anyone uh, that has a U.S. green card or U.S. citizens are not allowed to support China's semiconductor rise. And so so as long as China has the, uh, the talents, it's only a matter of time that China is going to have the chips. But now with the restraint on capital flow, it's going to dampen China's hope in catching up in this quintessential semiconductor technology. So sanctions, a big hurdle for China this year and for the years to come. What other big hurdles has China got to overcome looking as I say, to five years ahead. Demographics, that is a major challenge that China cannot avoid. Uh, we saw the new birth rate in 2022, it's hit a new low. So currently, we're starting to see uh, the danger, the risk of Japanization of the Chinese economy. So if we were to reflect on the early 1990s, uh, the economic models that Japan had at the time is uh, actually fundamentally very similar to what China has um, with the uh, 
burst of the property and the stock market bubble, Japan entered into decades of economic stagnation. And so that is a real danger that China is facing right now. That was Shirley Yu speaking to Tom Webb at Davos. Now let's look now at Germany. Olaf Scholz had been Chancellor barely two months when Russia attacked Ukraine last February and presented him with exactly the crisis any modern German leader wants least, a European war which Germany cannot stay entirely out of. Initially, Germans, Germany's rather public was supportive of Ukraine to a degree which seemed to surprise Germany's politicians. Scholz himself called it a Zeitenwender, or time's turn, and within days of Russian formations launching themselves towards Kiev, Germany had reversed a long-standing policy of not sending arms to participants in live conflicts, dispatching to Ukraine anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. Since then, however, there have been indications of equivocation, partly causing this week's resignation of German Defence Minister Christine Lambrecht. Um, Barbara, first of all, the, the row of the moment is whether Leopard 2 tanks should be sent to Ukraine by Germany, or whether Poland Poland and Finland should send theirs, which due to various technicalities they can't do without Germany signing off on it. Um, Is there any real reason why Germany should not send modern tanks to help Ukraine? Look, there's obviously a reluctance, and I think the debate within Germany is, are they offensive weapons or are they defensive weapons, which, you know, I'm no war expert, but frankly, when you're in war, all all weapons within reason, you know, you're trying to defeat the enemy. Mm. And if, you know, we've seen the recent attack in Dnipro where um, it seems, you know, the dozens of obviously civilians were probably targeted and certainly uh, killed. So it's not like the Russians are going to hold back. Um, I think it's a debate that's very particular to Germany. Uh, I think in the whole of Europe, what I've noticed in the narrative between continental Europe, say, and the UK and the US, I think the whole of Europe, there was a little bit more reluctance. Yes, there's support uh, for Ukraine, but perhaps a little bit more fear for historical reasons Mm. of a potential escalation into a proper full uh, European war. You know, remember, again, the difference between continental Europe and the UK's that continental Europe had war on its soil mm-hmm. in World War II. The UK was bombed fiercely and they resisted very bravely, but it's a different dynamic. So I think it's this debate about defensive and offensive weapons, obviously a, a reluctance from Germany. I would say that within the European family, especially now that the UK is out of the EU, perhaps there has been an absence felt of, of what could have been a stronger leadership uh, from Germany. There is a NATO meeting on Friday on the 20th, mm-hmm. where I'm assuming a lot of this will be uh, hammered out. There have been strange things coming out of Davos as well. I think the vice chancellor uh, said that they wouldn't stand in the way to to Finland and Poland uh, sending the tanks. But I think, you know, I'm assuming we'll get something definite on on Friday because the UK as well. Everyone is is sort of making encouraging sounds towards Germany, whether they play ball, I don't know. Uh, Jonathan, that specific German squeamishness about this sort of stuff, the reasons for it require no reiteration. But, But have we reached the point at which it's fair to say that Germany is kind of hiding behind it at this stage. I mean, I did speak last October at the Warsaw Security Forum to Christoph Heusken, who was Angela Merkel's chief foreign policy advisor for many years and an architect of uh, Germany's attempts to bring Russia into the fold. And and he did say when we were chatting about this, don't underestimate it, that the spectacle of German tanks being sent to the east to Mm, fight the Russians will make a lot of German people unhappy. But even if that's the case, shouldn't they kind of get over it at this point? I mean, modern Germans are the last people who think Germany is still that country. Yeah, I mean, you can, one can understand the reaction internally in Germany mm. uh, and the desire not to get involved in a, 
a wider war, a bigger war, and so on. But uh, at the same time, the whole Russian gas uh, saga mm-hmm. uh, and all everything else coming out of uh, the Ukraine uh, invasion has, I think, changed the position uh, of Germany, and particularly Germany in relation with, to Poland and other countries in Northern Europe. And in a sense, Germany is now being looked uh, to for a political, strategic, military, whatever you want to call it, leadership, which, as as yet, the government in Berlin and a lot of Germans, they would say, uh, are not really willing to assume. And there's a vacuum there. Mm. Uh, Macron was trying, in France, was trying to establish some kind of relationship with Putin uh, earlier on, but that uh, seems to have come to nothing. So Germany is rather on its own in a kind of will it occupy a vacuum in leadership uh, and that is a position which uh, no government in Berlin welcomes and particularly not Schultz and his coalition. Well on that thought uh, Barbara if Germany were to get over itself in this respect and become a what you would call I guess a confident even outgoing military power say in the way that France and the United Kingdom uh, wield their military overseas do you think there would still be some nervousness elsewhere in Europe about that I mean it's not all that long since there were certain European countries which were a bit ah about the idea of yep. German Germany reunifying you mean whether the other European countries would worry mm, about no. a strength in Germany would everyone be entirely comfortable with that you know, I don't, that's not the vibe I get mm. just from following the Italian press mainly, but also a bit of French and Spanish. I don't think it's so much a fear of Germany. I think it's a greater fear of a war escalating and obviously Putin mm. um, um, and being that. So I don't think it's so much a fear of Germany, but I think all all European countries are very much looking at their opinion polls of, of their populations. Now, actually, the gas crisis, energy-wise, Europe seems to have vaguely, you know, thanks to a you know mild winter or global warming, whichever you want to look at it, but, you know, silver lining, mild winter. It's doing okay when it comes to uh, the energy levels. The gas stocks are quite high considering this time of year. So if Putin's... uh aim was to split the European population and to erode the support for Ukraine. That hasn't happened uh, so far. But I think that, as I said before, there is a, a huge difference in the way that continental Europeans relate to this war. There is still support for Ukraine. But if you look a lot of, at a lot of the opinion polls, even recent ones, they'll still be at sort of 50, 60 percent, but nowhere near the kind of support that certainly you see in the United Kingdom. And I think at the same time, you, you, you do have, you know, we may like to deny it or uh, lamented, but you still do have a kind of fear of Germany, given the three German wars. Mm. Um, and, you know, going back to the old Helmut Kohl phrase, we have to have a European Germany so as not to have a German Europe, <laughs> um, which it actually encapsulates it very, very neatly, I think. And the question is whether there will be Europe, whether the Germans feel there will be European solidarity uh, around it if it did step up and exercise this kind of leadership and send the tanks. Uh, that said, Jonathan, is there not a counter-argument that Germany is getting beaten up on a little bit by other European countries who well realise that, that yes. nobody ever lost votes by beating up on the Germans? Because um, <laughs> while Germany is it's being a bit laggardly in Ukrainian assistance in terms of percentage of GDP, but in absolute terms it has spent 1.2 billion euros, this was as of late last year, mm. which is actually more than France has. 
Yes. And you've got certainly in France this old question of, you know, Germany can do the economic stuff, but we are the real political leaders of, of Europe and so on, which the French have not given up uh, on. And Poland has quite a few quarrels with Germany, too. Indeed. So, well, let's move along and look at Italy, the newspapers of which remain agog at yesterday's arrest in Palermo of Matteo Messina Denaro, the country's most wanted man. The police operation which ended his three decades at last involved dozens of armed officers and follows years of police targeting of people suspecting, suspected rather of protecting Denaro, more than a hundred of whom have been arrested. The 60-year-old, known as the last mafia godfather, was run to ground at a private clinic where he had been receiving, under a false name, treatment for cancer. His retirement options now appear extremely limited. He was convicted in 2002 in absentia of dozens of murders and sentenced to life in prison. Um, Barbara, first First of all, who basically is Denaro, and at his, certainly at his peak, how significant a figure was he? I think he's still a significant figure. I think he's more of an end of an era kind mm. of significant figure, but he was one of the great mafia bosses. And it's interesting, in English, the word mafia is kind of used interchangeably. Mm. In Italian, mafia, Cosa Nostra, relates specifically yeah. to the Sicilian mafia, as opposed to the Ndrangheta, which is in sort of southern Italy, and Camorra, of course, which is around uh, the Naples area. And it's only the mafia, really, that has a hierarchy where you have a, a king-like figure. Mm. And he was one of these uh, three. There were other two, Provenzano, Rina, um, who, uh, you know, were arrested and then have since uh, died. So the fact that he was in hiding and managed to stay in hiding for all this time is symbolic in itself. You know, there's still a lot of questions about how much, you know, control he actually had to Cosa Nostra right now. But the symbolism is huge. And and what, uh, two things I found, I guess not surprising, because he was found in Sicily. Mm. And in a way, a lot of people could have told you that's exactly where he was going to be found. It's exactly Exactly. Where he was going to be, his hideout place was near Trapani, which again, you know, it's a few, you know, tens tens of kilometers uh, places from one another. But the thing that really struck me is that when he was arrested from the clinic, people outside the clinic were applauding. Now, don't underestimate the symbolism of that, because the mafia, again, Cosa Nostra, it rules by fear. Mm. You know, it has all these concepts of, you know, they have all these lies they tell about themselves, that they don't kill women, they don't kill children. It's a lie. Um, Massino Denaro organized, he didn't do it himself, but oversaw the strangling of a pregnant woman. So, you know, it's all this this attempt at giving yep. themselves an, an, an honor code. And there used to be a time when you couldn't even mention the name of the mafiosi because you'd be so terrified that just mentioning their names, uh, mm. you know, w- would get you killed. And sometimes it did. So the fact that people felt emboldened enough to applaud is in itself symbolic. So, you know, I'm not a mafia expert. I can't tell you how many contacts he had and how much he actually directed uh, Cosa Nostra. I think there's a lot of question marks over that um, right now. But um, but certainly it's a step in the right direction and it helps assuage that, that fear that people that live in places with organized crime, you know, unless you live in a place like that, you cannot imagine just how, you know, it's like an octopus, tentacles mm. everywhere. And I was listening to an Instagram live that Roberto Saviano uh, did. I don't know whether you know him. He's the author yeah, of yeah. Gamora, and he's been living under police protection for 17 years. And what he was saying is like, you know, we can never think of the mafia being against the state because the way we have to see it is that the mafia is part of the state. Now, there's a part of the state that is very bravely fighting against the mafia, but that the mafia has links uh, when it comes to the judiciary, when it comes to police, when it comes to politics, and that is why it's so hard to eradicate um, organized crime. And, you know, organized criminality accounts 
correct. I think it's the biggest part of the Italian economy. <laughs> I mean, that's how huge it yeah. is. And it's not just Italy. I mean, it's, you know, it reaches everywhere. But just to follow up, Barbara, on that thought about the relationship between the mafia and some of the state and the fact that some of the state clearly uh, is trying to crack down on the mafia. And I, I was struck by that image that you mentioned of passers-by applauding um, as this fellow was having his collar felt. Um, do you get the sense that trust in the general Italian population is growing in the idea that the state is becoming more serious than it once was about cracking down on the mafia. You say Italian population. I mean, parts of Italy are like different countries. I know that even in the UK, north and south, you know, there's always a divide in every country. But, you know, Sicily and and Lombardy are different worlds. Uh, And certainly in the 90s, especially when uh, the anti-mafia judges Falcone and Borsellino were killed, in part also organized by Messina Denaro, there was a sense that the state uh, wasn't strong enough. The other thing that I think is worried when it comes to Cosa Nostra, and it has to be said that Cosa Nostra is a lot less powerful now. The Camorra mm. and Drangheta yeah. are a lot, lot stronger. Yeah. Um, but um, the thing about Cosa Nostra is that, again, they think that during COVID, basically Cosa Nostra became the bank that would lend to you when you couldn't get money. And so you see, again, it's that kind of links to, to society, to politics, to everything that are really difficult to eradicate. But Cosa Nostra is losing power, and if symbolically, if nothing else, but I don't think it is nothing else, but symbolically at least, this is certainly good news. Everyone, you know, my Italian feed on Twitter and all my social media, you know, where, you know, are rightly very, very happy. Uh, Jonathan, is, it is a, there's a universal lesson here, I guess, um, and I'm not sure we're going to come up with the answers in the next few minutes, but once corruption gets entrenched to a particular degree, it is incredibly hard. It is the work of yep. decades to extirpate it, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have this many, many examples across the world, including in China, where mm. Xi Jinping has been conducting an anti-corruption campaign for the last 10 years or so, and I'm not sure how far that has really gone because new cases come up the whole time, etc. Uh, well, there's it is, also the extent to which that is an apparatus primarily deployed to, to whack his political it opponents. It may be to whack your political <laughs> opponents, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Don't take it at face value entirely. But, uh, no, as you absolutely rightly say, Bob, um, you know, the question is when a, a group like the Mafia infiltrate the state, then the state becomes, in a sense, their prisoner and their captive. And so from what you were just saying earlier on, it's it's only when a group like the Mafia is weakened by other rivals who may be doing exactly the same thing, that it uh, declines and its bosses get caught. Uh, Barbara, the Palermo prosecutor, Maurizio De Lucia, warned that the Mafia is not defeated. He was he was quite specific about that. But I, I, I was struck that another difficulty possibly specific to breaking up these organisations is the degree to which it literally runs in families. Denaro's father was a mob boss as well. Yes, although interestingly, his daughter, uh, Denaro's daughter, has disowned him. So who knows? Maybe you're kind of breaking. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Uh, seriously, that maybe th- that is uh, breaking up. But yeah, you know, Cosa Nostra means our thing. And it yeah. is all based on, you know, the family links and, you know, again, quote unquote, very much quote unquote, honor codes and, and mm. all of that. Uh, so, yes, but, you know, you are looking at new generations now. So hopefully... 
you know, and, and even this symbolically maybe will, will change it. But look, it's incredibly difficult to eradicate. It's something that goes on for ages. And again, you know, the COVID example, it, sometimes they are the state when the state yeah. isn't there. Mm-hmm. And we see that yeah. dynamic in yeah. lots of places, you know, a lot of extreme groups, for example, you know, in, 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 this is in, the, in the Middle this East. Is, this is the Hezbollah model in Lebanon. Listen, yeah. yeah, I mean, I wouldn't compare them to the mafia, but absolutely, you know, when the state isn't there, who mm. do you go to? And, yeah, you know, exactly. protection money. When I mean, the arguably, police are not there, yes. Exactly. Who I mean, are your police? Yeah, in the end, you end up having to pay protection money to protect yourself against them. Yeah. But the whole idea is that they are the support network and you owe them your loyalty and you owe them your silence. And that's why this guy, it took 30 years to catch. Yeah. Well, finally to France, where the recent global mania for toppling the statues of figures discredited by contemporary mores has come for a perhaps unlikely target, the Virgin Mary. Possibly even more weirdly, the de-plinthing of Mary, currently standing at a crossroads in the hamlet of La Flotte on Ile de Ré, is occurring not at the hands of a righteous, enraged mob, but at the instruction of a judge who has determined that the statue's location violates the separation of church and state, an admirable principle regarding which France arguably occasionally overdoes the punctiliousness. The backstory here is that the statue was originally erected on private land but later donated to the town. It has stood since 1983 without, as of this broadcast, fatally undermining the Fifth Republic. Uh, Jonathan, first of all, has a nice leading question for you. <laughs> are you in favour of bulldozing the Mother of Christ? No. Uh, and, but Barbara, where are you on this? I'm, I'm for the Mother of Christ thing, where she is. Yeah. Yeah. So, surprising answer from an Italian. <laughs> no, 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 there's a lot, you know. Yeah. Italy's a secular state as well, because we like to keep ourselves yeah. away from the Vatican, but yeah. Um, Jonathan, this is... The, the the decision results from a complaint by an organisation which spends its time filing cases to defend France's secularity, very arguably a sack of pious cranks. Should the judges have found a way to ignore them? I think they should have. Um, I don't know who the judges are in this case, but I think the judges let's say, lacked uh, a political sense uh, here because you've got secularism in France, which, of course, is a kind of religion uh, in its way, Mm. the lay religion uh, of France. But it's um, breached all the time, everything. I mean, Mm, why was Sunday always the day off and so on? Why do people celebrate Christmas? Think of the number of French villages you've been through where there's a cross Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on display. And if they all start being bulldozed, it'll be um, a lot of work and for the, the demolition names, men. In the names and of the names places, are yeah. sound something. Sound something, something. There's always sound. a cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife and myself, my wife is French, uh, my wife and myself, we used to make uh, a list of new saints from villages <laughs> we, when we drove through France and yeah. so on, some of whom are very, very obscure indeed. This is the difficulty, though, I guess, Barbara, with the principle of separating church and state, which is. It's one of those principles which I think is important to have stated as a principle on the understanding that, look, really, you can't absolutely hammer everything. In this particular case, um, the judges were offered a loophole. The locals are arguing, possibly kind of ingenuously, that it's actually a war memorial, not Mm. a religious monument. Now, that is a loophole that should have been eagerly climbed through, shouldn't it? Oh, they could just say that they want it in their town. They could just say that it's part of their 
culture, I mean, you know, Christianity, even if it is now a lot of, you know, countries are secular countries, Christianity was still culturally mm. part, obviously, of, of of Europe. And it's interesting, the whole laïcité in France, you know, when I hear that, I think of veiled Muslim women and a lot of the issues that a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Muslim women in, yeah. in France wearing their hijab have because of this sometimes intransigent way that this uh, law is looked at. Look, I just think it's part of the culture. I just think you always have to have a little bit of common sense. It'll be interesting to see. Apparently, we've got six months now before they remove the statue. So whether the people, the villagers, take to the streets and defend their statue. Uh, I mean, this this is, I mean, if if push does come to shove here, Jonathan, that's going to be quite the the issue in management of optics, isn't it? If you you have a bunch of villagers defending the statue of Virgin Mary (laughs) from the literal wrecking ball. On the Ile de Ré. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very picturesque place. Oh, I'm sure. It'll make great... Uh, Television. Uh, film on the, the, <laughs> the evening news. Uh, yeah, well, and on that thought, finally, Barbara, if that should happen, if we actually get, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it's actually kind of funny. On the other hand, it's just not, it's really quite weird. If there is actual footage of a government-sanctioned crane swinging or wrecking ball at the Mother of yeah. Christ, how much fun do you imagine American conservative media having with that? Do you know what? Uh, Never mind well, the American conservatives. Yeah. It would be it would be the far right in Europe. I mean, I you Le Pen, are Le handing you are handing Le Pen a gift, aren't yeah, you? Absolutely. And and the radical right across Europe. Now I don't know how to call it. I can understand the secular mm-hmm. argument, yeah. but it is such a gift to the absolutely. radical right right across Europe. Barbara Sarah and Jonathan Fenby thank you both very much for joining us that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily thanks to our panellists tonight and also to Tom Tom Webb rather in Davos today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Parmintuan our sound engineer was Callum McLean I'm Andrew Muller here in London the Daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks for listening 